We are in Isaiah chapter 49. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Believe me, this was not a pleasant one to study. And it's okay, but there's some, I'm going to give you some information, and then we're going to just talk. Because the information, you can use it for years from now, and it might help you, and it might not, but that's okay. I just have to give you what's here, and then we're going to talk about what's really on my heart. Isaiah chapter 49 has 26 verses. 26 lovely, really fun verses to read. Um, the first half, 13 of those 26, identify a servant. Scholars are not in any way 100% in, con in, in understanding or in agreement on what this is talking about. Many, many, many scholars say that this is talking about the Messiah. In the first 13 verses. Some scholars say, no, 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 it's just the first six verses. And then the seven through the 13 verses are actually talking about the people of Israel. And some scholars say, it's none of that. So take it for what it's worth. And we're not even going to read a whole lot of that. Just understand that as you read this, it is talking about someone who has been declared by God from before they were born... To be a servant who is going to reveal God's glory, not only to the people of Israel, but to the entire world. Okay? And as a result of that proclamation, verse 13, it literally says, Shout for joy, O heavens, and sing, O ye earth. Break forth, ye mountains, into singing, for God has comforted his people and has, com and has compassion on those who have affliction. It's a glorious, glorious, glorious statement of what God is doing for his people. And the very next verse, chapter 49, verse 14 says, But the people of Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. <laughs> what? You, didn't you just read the first 13 verses here, guys? Something really cool is about to happen. Yeah, but that's in the future. This is my life now. My life now is bad. God doesn't care about me. He has forsaken me. He has forgotten me. And God literally says the very next words. Can a woman who is nursing her child forget the child? That she should have no compassion on the child of her womb. Some might forget, yes. But I will never forget. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste, your destroyers, and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants. And those who swallowed you up will be far away. What that's saying is the time is going to come, O oh people, when you're going to get to go back to your land. And it's going to be so full, you're not going to have any room to walk around. And you're going to go, where did these people come from? 
Because I didn't have any kids. All of my kids were killed. Where did this come from? Well, God is saying, literally, it's everyone's going to be coming from around the world. There's going to be the diaspora, the, 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 the dispersed people of Israel from the very time of the dispersion are now going to come about. Well, again, scholars are saying, well, is this talking about after Babylon? Or is this talking about the end times when all of the Jews? Or is it talking about 1948 when Israel? Who cares? Who cares? God is specifically saying, people, I will never forget you. You are ever before me. And not only that is, the bad stuff that's going on in your world right now is going to be so good that you're going to be saying, God, the blessings are too big. It's too much. I can't deal with this. That's what God is saying to his people. And then he says, and I don't want to get into it because it's kind of gross. But the last three verses talk about your enemies falling down before you and bowing to you and licking the dust off your feet. And at the very end, he says, Then all flesh flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Cool story, cool fun stuff. There's, there's some interesting things if you want to take the time to read it. But the one thing that jumped off the page at me that I couldn't get away from, that I tried very, very, very hard to study, um, <clears throat> excuse me, and I couldn't find it anywhere. No one talked about it. No one. And it just drove me crazy. Let me, and, and I, and I'm even looking in my, in my notes here and I'm not finding it. So hold on for just a second. I thought it was right there. Father, show it to me. because There it is. There it is. Verse 23. Verse 23. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. Will their faces... With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Now, every time I would go to a book to open up a scholarly journal or an article about this, trying to find information about verse 25... All the stupid commentators would talk about were the kings and the, the queens bowing down and nursing and licking your boots. I'm like, what is this? All the people who wait for God, who know that he is the Lord, shall not be put to shame. It's right. Oh, God, it's right up on the screen. I could have just looked at the screen. <laughs> See, shame is a big thing. When, when we don't live in a shame-based culture as much as the Middle Eastern people do. Okay? The Middle Eastern, and even Asian people. I lived in the Philippines in um, the middle 80s, 1980s. And that's a very shame-based culture. What that means is you never wanted someone... You never wanted to cause someone to lose face. That was the expression. 
You would never want to say or do anything that would cause someone else to feel embarrassed or ashamed because it was a great insult to them. In Middle East culture, you literally are not culturally allowed to cross your legs in such a way that the sole of your foot shows to anybody because that is an incredible offense. I don't know if you remember or not, but when President George Bush was in the Middle East, somebody threw their shoes at him. That was an incredible, huge offense in their culture. And if you read, I believe it's Psalm 13 or 31. 13 is the number in my mind. There is a quote there that Jesus used during the Last Supper. And it's, he who has raised his heel up against me is the one who is... And what he's saying there is, I have shown great hospitality and great love and great compassion to this individual, and they turned their heel up against me. For, for our vernacular, they would, it would say, they flipped me off. They would show the middle finger in response to that compassion, that love. See, that's, that's the understanding of shame. And although I said our culture doesn't deal in shame culturally, we all, as individuals, are shamed growing up. There are some in this room who have struggled, and you don't have to raise your hand and attest to it, but I know. There are some in this room who have been shamed over their bodies. There are some in this room who have been shamed over their education. There are some in this room who have been shamed over their finances. There are some people in this room who have been shamed because they can't figure out technology. There are some people in this room who have been shamed because, and because, and because, and because. And you carry around in you this self-worth problem. I am not worthy. I am bad. I am less than. I am not good. That's all shame. I will, I will share one more. I don't want to name the name because we're recording. But you just spoke about a great shame in your world where you wish that you didn't have to deal with the fact that you can't see your child because of something your child did. And it reflects on you. And I'm not trying to hurt you in any way, but I'm saying this is something that's very real and very, very raw. And there are people in this room who are still struggling over their shame. They've never been released from their shame. It's always before them. They're Christians. They love the Lord. They have a great relationship with God. They read His Word and they pray regularly and they trust Him. But they can't get past this thing. You know, when I was in Bible college 13, 15, 17 years ago, however many long years ago it was, there was a night when we were having revival services at Trinity Church of the Nazarene in Colorado Springs, and at the end of the service, the preacher gave an altar call, and I was sitting up in the balcony of the church, and I stood up, and I walked down the back stairs into the foyer, down through the front steps, I mean, down through the front aisle area, down to the altar, and the whole time I was doing that long walk, I was praying, and I was saying, God, I do not want anyone to come up to me while I'm kneeling at this altar. 
I'm asking you, please, do not give any of these professors that are from the Bible college or my friends from the Bible college or anybody to come behind me and beat me on the back and pray for me. I just want it to be you and me alone, God. And when I got down to that altar, <coughs> that's exactly what God did for me. It was me and him alone. 100 plus, 200 plus people in the room. But it was me and him alone. <coughs> and I knelt at that altar and I said, Jesus, I know that I'm clean before you. And I know that I'm right before you. There's nothing going on. I have no guilt in my spirit that I'm having to confess. But God, I am carrying with me shame from my whole world. Things that I've done wrong, things that have been done to me, things that I just can't get past. And I'm asking you, God, would you please take this away from me? Would you please? I don't want it anymore. I don't want to hold on to this. I don't want the debilitating effects of this shame in my life anymore. Would you just take it? And I literally said to him, and I don't want an emotional experience. Please. I don't want tears. I don't want, oh, I just, you and me, and that's it. I'm going to drop it off. It's a transaction. We're done. And I walk away. And that's literally what happened. I removed the cloak of shame from me, and I folded it up neatly, and I laid it down at the foot of that prayer rail, and I quietly got up and walked away. And you know how I know it worked? What color is my wristwatch band? You've heard this story already. I couldn't wear red because of shame. I don't have time this morning to go into the story. You've heard it before. But I was shamed over the color red. And I carried it from the time I was about 12 or 13, maybe 11, all the way until that night when I was 42. So I was like 30 years carrying shame about the color red in addition to everything else. And after that night... I don't remember how long later it was. My wife made comment to me because I was wearing a shirt that had a lot of red in it. And she said, you don't wear red, but it looks good on you. And it was an epiphany for me. Something in me had changed, literally changed. I now drive a red pickup truck and I have a red wristwatch band that is always on my arm all day long ever reminding me I am free from shame. I no longer carry that with me. And it has never come back. Now, I will tell you that the enemy has tried very hard to make it come back. I will tell you that less than two weeks ago, I was in a meeting someplace and someone made me feel stupid. Because they knew better than me. They weren't being unkind, but they were being superior in their attitude. And I felt small. And I felt humiliated. And I got angry. And I didn't say or do anything that wasn't Christ-like, but I confronted the person and I said, You will not make me feel stupid. You will not make me feel 
less than just because you have greater knowledge than I in this area. And I will not receive that again. Period. And as I drove away, I thought, God, did I say or do anything that was harmful? No, I don't think so. But the other thing that was so cool was, woohoo! I did not allow the enemy to cloak me back into shame. And I'm still wearing red as a testimony of the healing that God gave me. And I did a word search because I was like, you know, this is a, a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful and obviously ignored principle in Isaiah. And I thought, Lord, where else in your word does it give us that promise that those of us who know you and who wait on you will not be put to shame? And I couldn't find another place in the Bible. I looked up in different translations. I looked, the word ashamed, shame, shaming. This is the only place that I could find. Now, if you find it someplace else, I know Jesse's already got his Bible out and he's already searching. So, if you find it someplace else, please let me know because I want to find someplace else. But literally, I found no other place in the Bible that I could find that talks about this promise. What does it say? No condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay. I can accept that. That is a good that is a good one. And I I may be, because of my history, slightly skewing what the Lord is saying here. Because what I hear in Romans 8 1 just, uh, that you just quoted is that there's no more condemnation over my past sins. But when I hear the difference between sin and shame, see, there's a difference between no longer being guilty and no longer being shamed. There's a huge difference. Because I can be declared guiltless and still carry shame. I can, I can be told, hey, you're good. Everything you've done has been expunged from your record. There is no longer any, any record that you've ever done anything wrong. I can still feel bad on the inside over what I've done. And that's the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is you stand accountable before someone for whatever it is that they're holding over you. Shame is you hold, you're standing accountable before yourself. And in this culture, it was also shameful. I mean, you dishonor God, you dishonor your family, you dishonor your community. So there's, there's that too. Um, in, in, the, uh, in the, the Amish communities, in the Mormon communities, they practice shunning. Where if a person does not conform to the community standard, they get removed from the community. Well, that carries great shame for people. And the reality is the enemy can distract you from the calling that's on your life. The enemy can, can, can I, don't want to, I don't know how to say it other than, it's like every time you try to take a step forward in the way that God is calling you, it's like a tripwire pops up and you trip and fall flat on your face because I can't, I can't, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy, I can't, I can't. It's a way for the enemy to keep you down. And the reality is, 
You don't have to own it anymore. You don't have to carry it with you. You don't have to hold on to it. And you certainly don't have to accept any more of it. Because your Heavenly Father has declared, if you are trusting in Him, and if you wait on Him, you shall not be put to shame. End of discussion. And like I said, I couldn't find a single commentator that wanted to address that issue. And so it may just be my own personal stuff that I felt like I had to say something. But I needed you to hear that this morning. And I needed to be reminded of it this morning. Because like I said, it's been 13, almost 15 years since God removed that cloak of shame from me. And the enemy tried to put it back on me this week. And I couldn't and won't own it. I won't. I'm not going to walk in that ever again. Because it is debilitating, folks, if you've never experienced it. It affects your relationships with other people. It, it, really, it affects your self-image. It affects how you perceive God's love. And it is a darkness that the enemy tries to keep you in. And you say that. You can't even see the cross. That's an amazing statement. So, do not own whatever it is that the enemy has tried to hold over you for so long. Read through Isaiah 49. Yes, it's great stuff about the Messiah. And yes, it's great stuff about God will never forget you. And it's great stuff about God making your enemies lick your boots. <laughs> but the message that I had to, take to tell you was, you can be free from all shame. I don't know how he does it. I just know that he does. And literally, let me, this is the image that's in my brain, I've got to say it. It's not just a cloak. Because it's like while you're wearing the cloak, all of these roots go down deep. And if you take, try to just rip the cloak off, those roots will grow back to form another cloak. God himself has to root out all of that shame so that it can never come back. And it's, it's, a, it's a God thing. It's a miraculous thing. But it is yours, available to you, for the asking. You can receive it by faith. And so as we close our time this morning, around this communion table, before you even try to take communion, first of all, make sure your, your spirit is clean before God. That there is no sin. And if there's any shame that you're carrying and allowing the enemy to continue to cloak you with, you need to give that to God as well. If he chooses to take it from you, hallelujah. If he chooses to let you carry it for a little bit longer because he sees that's best for you, hallelujah. But don't hold on to it yourself. Do not allow the enemy to continue to cloak you with something that will destroy you. Let's pray.